0: Good morning, welcome to our weekly Bible talk. We've come here to Exodus chapter 11 so I'd invite you to get your Bibles open there. Uh, Just to remind you of the context for several weeks now we've been talking about these plagues that God is sending on the nation of Egypt. Uh, You'll remember the people of Israel are slaves in Egypt. Egypt they're cruel taskmasters especially pharaoh they're making the egyptians do this very uh, pardon me the the israelites do this very menial slave labor making bricks and then you know when moses shows up he makes it worse and they're making bricks without straw but then through a series of 10 plagues god is humbling pharaoh breaking his will so that he'll let the people of israel go and you'll remember a couple of things i stressed about these plagues First, in one sense, there's sort of a, a reversal of the creation account. If you go back to the creation account in Genesis one and two, that creation account—it's about a lot of things. But one of the things that it's about is bringing order out of chaos. You know, there's uh, dry land and earth, and God's God's organizing everything and putting everything in its proper place and separating uh, the animals from the humans and whatnot. Well, what you see in the plagues is sort of a reversal of all of that. The frogs that are supposed to be out in the swamps come into the village and what's more not only into the city, they get into people's beds and whatnot. Uh, the, the separation between light and darkness, that's destroyed so there's dar- darkness all the time during the plague of darkness. So that's one of the things that we see in these plagues, the reversal of uh, the creation order. The way that God has designed creation is actually good. It's for our blessing. Um, you know, just the way that God has structured everything, You know, and I won't go into this for the sake of time, but I'm sure you've heard preachers talk before about how if the earth were just slightly further from the sun, slightly closer to the sun, we'd all die. The fact that the moon goes around the earth and creates these tides, those are actually quite essential. I mean, everything in creation, uh, while yes, creation has been cursed by sin, creation is still fun Functions the way that it does uh, for our good, for human flourishing. And you see God's love in that. Uh, but again, as creation collapses in on itself in these plagues, uh, you see that as judgment. The other thing that we've been talking about, and this will come up again in the plague that we're uh, discussing today, is the way in which... Pretty much all, if not all, of these plagues, almost all of these plagues, are directed toward different gods in the land of Egypt. You all remember the Egyptians worshipped a wide variety of gods. They were polytheists, and they worshipped Ra, the sun god, and Horus, uh, that was the god with the uh, what was it? A hawk head. Um, You know, there was that god with the frog head. All, all these different deities that they worshipped. Now from a Christian perspective they're just dead idols, they're nothings, You know, at worst they're demons, Um, but they actually thought they were gods. And one by one God's knocking them down kind of like dominoes, showing that the Nile, you worship that as a god, I'm going to turn it into blood. Frogs, you worship that as a god, I'm going to kill them and they're going to be just lying dead all over the place. Last week we looked at the way that God turned the sun into darkness and one of the most popular gods in Egypt was Ra, the sun god. You probably remember him from elementary school. Uh, Well what is God saying when I turn the sun into absolute darkness he's killing their gods. So again, if not every single one of the plagues almost all of the plagues are directed towards specific uh, Egyptian gods. Keep that in mind because again today we're going to be talking about the death of Pharaoh's firstborn which is kind of a big deal. And again, it connects into these themes. Uh, Let me pray, we'll jump into it. Today's chapter is a little bit different in that it is sort of the prelude to a plague. Um, And what that does, it heightens the significance of this final plague. In a way, this is sort of the climax. Things are building toward this plague. Uh, They were bad, they were bad, they were bad. They're getting worse, 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 worse. This is the final plague that's gonna break Pharaoh's will so that he lets the people of Israel go. Um, But to sort of set the stage and to communicate how incredibly significant this plague is. We've got an entire chapter here sort of setting the stage. Let me pray and then we'll dive into Exodus 11. Pray with me. Lord God we do love your word and believe it is the word of life. Uh, Lord, where else can we go? Uh, To whom else should we listen? Lord, these are the words of everlasting life. So please help us to treasure them, help us to believe them, help us to apply them to our lives. Help us today to see how uh, this passage teaches us about your character, about your plan, uh, about the entire work of redemption that culminates in Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. Help me, Lord, to make comments that really bring out the meaning and the significance of this passage. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, like we've been doing, I think, uh, and and this might be a permanent change, you'll know if you listen to these for some time, Uh, typically I'd read the entire section and then go back and make comments. Uh, I think it might be beneficial, more beneficial to just read a few verses, make some comments, read a few more verses, make some comments, and that way work through the section. So let's begin with Exodus 11, verse 1, and we'll follow along and see what God has to say to us in it. Exodus 11, 1. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards he will let you go from here. Now pause there. You see there the uh, at least the foreknowledge of God. I think it's more than that. God has got all this planned out. In fact this was all planned out from before the creation of the world. But God knows that this is the the plague that's going to break Pharaoh's back. After this, he's going to let the people of Israel go. You'll remember, if you go back to the beginning of the plagues, God had predicted this to, uh, Moses. He's going to say, Moses. He said to Moses, I'm going to bring these plagues, but I'll harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people of Israel go. I will harden, their, harden his heart, will not let the people of Israel go. And the entire goal was to do all ten of these plagues to display his glory. But here now is the final one, and this is the one that's going to, going to crack his will. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. He's going to say, "Get off my land! I don't want to see you anymore." And that shows you how much this is actually changing Pharaoh's will. You'll remember at the beginning, uh, he wouldn't let them go like a hundred yards out of the out of their land to worship God. Uh, he, you know, he was so protective of these slaves, he so treasured these slaves, and like we've talked about before, this was a huge part of their economy. To lose this many slaves would have been just devastating the the economy. I mean, it would have been like the Great Depression times ten. But I'm going to. Do Do such a work that Pharaoh is going to say, "Get out of here! I never want to see you again." Verse two speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. Now pause there. If we've seen, say, the Ten Commandments, uh, we know that this event is coming. But just ponder for a second how odd that is. Uh, they're going to ask their neighbors for free gold and they're going to give them, uh, give it to them. Uh, how odd is that? I mean, everybody's treasured gold. People have treasured gold for thousands of years. You may have heard those crazy gold commercials on the radio. I hear them all the time. Uh, you know, Gold has never been worth zero. That sort of thing. Um, Gold was worth a lot back then, especially to the Egyptians. They encrusted everything with gold. You've probably seen King Tut's uh, treasures and whatnot. Uh, But at the mere request, uh, when the Israelites say, please give us gold and silver, they're going to give them gold and silver. Which again, I think shows the power of God over our hearts. God has the ability to so change our hearts so that the gold we treasure today, uh, God can work, uh, convict us, open our hearts by His Spirit so that we despise this gold and say, here, take this gold and get out of here, you Israelites. Uh, That's the kind of power God has over our hearts. Never think that God doesn't have power over a certain area of life. Uh, I've heard that sort of Talk before uh, that God is a gentleman, God will not manipulate your heart. Uh, Whoever's saying that is not reading scripture. Uh, God definitely, like Proverbs 16 says, the heart of the king God holds in his hand like a stream of water and he directs it wherever he wishes. Uh, So never think that there's a particle in the universe that's outside of God's control. And again, something that you treasure, God can so work by his spirit so that you just freely give it away. Uh, That's actually a good thing, uh, that, that truth that God has sovereignty over our hearts. Why is that a good thing? The reason why that's a good thing is most of the reason why we sin has to do with what our hearts love. I, I hate to admit that. That's true for me. It's true for you. It's really true for all of us. The reason why we sin is not because the circumstances are so intense. It's not because of the encouragement of our neighbor. Uh, it's not because our kids are driving us crazy. You can't blame your sin on any external circumstance. You can't even blame it on the devil. Of course, the devil provides temptations and afflictions and whatnot. But you can't say, the devil made me do it. I know that there, there was uh, some comedian in the past that said that. Uh, but but that's not biblically correct. You can't blame anything. The reason why we sin is because part parts of our heart love this sin our flesh loves this sin the reason why we keep turning to say pornography or alcohol or uh, laziness or pride or whatever is because our heart loves that sin at that thought, you might think, oh, that's terrible. Like That's really disappointing to hear. Well, on the one hand, it is disappointing to hear, but all it is is reality because I think deep down we know that the reason why we sin is because we love it. But at the same time, it gives us hope because God has sovereignty over our hearts and can change our hearts so that we can pray, dear Lord, change my heart. Uh, dear Lord, renew my mind, renew my heart, put my flesh to death so that this sin that I love so much eventually you change my heart so that I hate this sin and freely relinquish it. I'll be reminded of that as we read here about how God so changed their hearts that they freely gave away their gold and their silver. Verse 3 And the Lord gave people the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Uh, now think through Moses's. History that we've had here in the book of Exodus. Uh, he's born and raised in Pharaoh's household. I mean, obviously before that, he was you know for like three months a Hebrew baby living with his mother. But then there's the whole thing with the basket, and you know Pharaoh's daughter finds him and whatnot. But for forty, his, the first forty years of his life, he grows up in Pharaoh's household. Then he's driven out into the wilderness because of the whole fiasco there where he murdered an Egyptian and he had to run for his life. And for the next forty years, he's a shepherd in Midian, just kind of chasing around sheep, doing this or that. But then the Lord appears to him in the burning bush and says go let my people go and then here he's finally in egypt and think about the sort of poetic irony Uh, he goes from being an outlaw running for his life to now all of a sudden everybody's honoring him. And they're not honoring him because he has any sort of formal position of honor in Egyptian society. You know, It's not like he became the president or something like that. But just by virtue of the power of his character, by virtue of power of the, the plagues and whatnot, everybody is in awe of this guy. God has exalted him, even though earlier he had, had to run for his life as an outlaw. Uh, sort of shows you the poetic irony in the way that God does oppose the proud but gives grace to the humble. Well anyway, verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Pause there, just a few quick things. The fact that this is Pharaoh's firstborn is massively significant. Uh, Pharaoh, like we've talked about, was viewed as a god. Uh, Sometimes you wonder, what's the difference between a Pharaoh and a king? Well, a king is powerful and rich and mighty and whatnot, uh, but typically people don't look at the king as God incarnate. Uh, You know, we just coronated what's his name king charles over in england um nobody in their right mind looks at him as a god incarnate that's different from ancient egypt where he actually looked at the pharaoh as god incarnate uh, now I, again he wasn't he was just a man like you and me and he you know if anything he was worse off than you and me because he didn't have the true knowledge of god and yet he was worshipped by his people as a god now who would become the next pharaoh i mean again you remember your elementary school lessons on egyptian history after the pharaoh on the throne dies, who becomes the next pharaoh? It would be his firstborn son. He would be revered as king. So put two and two together. If the plagues are directed toward the different gods of Egypt, and if the pharaoh is viewed as a god, and if God is going to strike down the firstborn of pharaoh, again, that's God coming after the gods of Egypt, cutting them down, showing the Egyptians that your gods are dead idols and that I, Jehovah, am the true and living God. And I do think that through all of this, we're seeing more and more Egyptians coming to saving faith in Jehovah. Uh, That is a theme worth exploring on your own. You might sometime read the first, say, 15 chapters of Exodus with that uh, truth in mind. Is God seeking to save Egyptians? I I totally believe he is. And throughout these first 15 chapters, you see him doing this, doing that, so that the Egyptians will know that I am God, so that the Egyptians will embrace me as Lord. And I think you see that hinted at with their change of attitude toward Moses. And again, part of the reason why God cuts down our idols is so that we embrace, we further embrace God as the Lord. Uh, Again, do keep that in mind. I know that we've talked in this series about God coming after our idols and sometimes that feels kind of painful. You know, if I idolize something and it brings me happiness, uh, man, isn't that kind of mean for God to cut that idol down? No, the reason why he's cutting that idol down is because we're seeking from that idol what only the true God can supply and therefore by eliminating this idol from our lives. We're directed more to find our satisfaction and our joy in the true and living God. So again, keep that in mind that God, yes, it's a painful thing to have idols eliminated from your life, but God does that because he loves us. Those idols are in a way like cancerous tumors that are destroying our lives. And if, if we trust in them entirely, we'll lose our souls. So I mean, that's, that's something terrifying to ponder. So again, because God loves us, he comes after our idols. Well, anyway, every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, firstborn of Pharaoh, even the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the hand mill and all the firstborn of the cattle. Now, this is important because this indicates that this plague is not directed just toward Pharaoh. It's not directed only toward the Egyptians because a lot of these slaves would have been not... Egyptians, they would have been other nations. And that's something to remember. When you think of Egypt enslaving other nations, don't think that they only enslaved the Israelites. Yes, they enslaved the Israelites, but there were probably uh, dozens of other nations enslaved there. Uh, Egypt at this particular time in history was probably the mightiest empire on the planet. They're enslaving people from all over the place, you know, deep down in Africa, probably other parts of Asia. So they got a variety of ethnic groups that are enslaved and yet this plague is going to come after them all Uh, you know if they're Ethiopian or uh, Sudanese or whatever uh, the firstborn will die now thank God later on God does give us a way of salvation. It is interesting that God doesn't mention that here. Right here all we've got is the law and the threat of judgment. This plague is coming. Later he talks about applying the blood to the doorpost and the lintel so that they might be saved. Uh, But at this particular point there's no mention of that, uh, which is kind of interesting. It does connect to the gospel. I mean the gospel you've got to begin with the message of law and judgment. Until people know that they're saved they're not going to understand that they need a savior. So you begin there. You've broken God's laws. God is angry with our rebellion. We have loved Uh, darkness rather than light. You lay that thick foundation so that then you're able to present Jesus the Savior. But if people don't get the dire condition that we're in, uh, the Savior's not going to make any sense. And so also here, I think you see something like that hinted at in that the first message is all uh, death is coming, judgment is coming, uh, but then uh, pause a few minutes later. But for those who apply the blood to the doorpost and the lintel, you might be saved. Anyway, Verse 6, "'There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again.'" I love that phrase, never will be again. That's sort of prophecy, because he's predicting that nothing this bad will ever happen again in the history of the world. This phrase comes up several times in scripture. You might uh, check it out and say Bible Gateway or something like that. There are plenty of prophecies where God says, this thing that's coming is so bad, nothing like it's ever happened before, nothing like it will ever happen Again. The Bible can only do that because the Bible is a supernatural book from God. God you know, Humans can't predict. You know, we, We've seen some hurricanes lately. We've seen some natural disaster. You know, there was that fire in Hawaii and whatnot, and these are terrible things, but nobody in their right mind would say nothing this bad is ever going to happen again. The only way you can say that is if you know the future exhaustively and if God is the one inspiring these uh, scriptures. So keep that in mind. Whenever you come across that, that phrase, it's a reminder that the entire Bible is from God. Anyway, verse seven, not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. This idea has come up before that God does distinguish between his people and the Gentiles, between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And again, we see this theme all throughout scripture. There's the battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the devil. In this particular age, you've got the church that's going out making disciples of all the nations, but then you've got the greater world that hates and persecutes the church. Um, This is a battle that just characterizes this age. God, in his mercy, will protect his people, continue to build his people, even in the face of opposition and persecution. But a future day is coming when... The wicked will be cast into hell, and then you know the the entire new heavens and the new earth, and the glory of God will cover the the earth as the waters cover the seas, so forth. Um, But again, keep that in mind that God does distinguish. Now. Putting a few things together, it is interesting that in chapter 12, it's only those who have the blood on the doorpost and the lintel uh, who will be saved. Here, it's I- Israel will be saved. Um, I think the reason for that is because at this particular point, Israel is largely the believing people of God. Now, again, like we've said, not every single one of them believed. Um, you know, let's say the Egyptian or the Israelites at this particular time are two million. Uh, who's to know how many of that two million were actually believers? But let's say what. Seventy-five percent, maybe. Um, those are going to be saved, but their faith will demonstrate itself by applying the blood to the doorpost and the lintel. But I do think that if Israelites didn't believe, you know, let's say there's a Jewish slave living in Egypt, and he's like, "Yeah, all that Moses stuff, all that plague stuff's nonsense. It's just natural disasters. There's no Jehovah God. I'm not going to put blood on my doorpost and on my lintel." Uh, were a Hebrew to do that uh, he would have his firstborn struck down. It's not like he's saved by his Jewishness. And what this reminds us of is that idea in Romans that not all Israel is Israel. Uh, Who is Israel? It's those who are, yes, descended from Abraham ethnically, but more than that they have the faith of Abraham they believe the promises of God and that faith would show itself in their works by applying the blood to the doorposts and the lentil. Uh, A lot we could talk about there. Don't assume that just because maybe uh, your forefathers were Jewish that you're right with God. Uh, Don't assume that because you're born in a so-called Christian nation you're right with God. Uh, Don't assume because your parents were Christians or you went to a Christian school or maybe you were baptized in a Christian. None of these things really at the end of the day make that much difference. What makes a difference is, do you personally put your faith in the Lord Jesus? Uh, Not all Israel is Israel. Not all those who claim to be Christians are Christians. So how about you? Are you personally, individually trusting in the Lord Jesus? Have you hoped in Him and put no confidence in the flesh? Uh, Otherwise, you too will die with the wicked, despite your pedigree and ancestors and ethnicity. Uh, None of those will mean anything when you stand before God. Anyway, uh, verse 8. And all these servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out again, sort of reiterating what God said earlier, eventually they're going to get so sick of you that they're going to drive you out of their land. And again, I think that simply illustrates the dramatic change in attitude that Pharaoh and the Egyptians have had toward the people of Israel. And yet that's what the death of the, first, the firstborn can do. I mean, it, it can totally turn things upside down. And those of you who are parents probably have a taste of this. Um, I'll you know just kind of be transparent here. I was not a very emotional guy until I started having kids. You know, I was kind of stoic and you know john wayne ish and all of a sudden once i started having kids everything changed and you know, i got all emotional and connected to my kids and all of a sudden i started feeling feelings i never felt in my entire life uh, that's what children can do to you now ponder the idea of your firstborn being struck down at midnight Uh, all of a sudden you know he's he's healthy monday morning he's smiling doing well playing outside and then all of a sudden in the middle of the night he's cut down dead Uh, that would be overwhelming now imagine that happening to the entire nation Uh, everybody's firstborn son being cut down Uh, you can see why Uh, their entire attitude would shift toward the Israelites to the point where they're saying, you get out of here, we never want to see you again. But that's exactly what God is going to do. And again, that shows you the way in which God is willing to bring great pain into people's lives to humble them Uh, You know, again, we we love to imagine God as all flowers and rainbows and and, uh, uh, butterflies, you know, all this happy stuff. And God certainly does bless us with a lot of happy blessings. Don't get me wrong there. But at the same time, God is willing to use incredibly painful means, probably more painful than you're uh, comfortable recognizing, if that accomplishes the humbling of our hearts, the killing of our idols, and the accomplishing of our plan. If that's the case, the wise thing to do is to repent as soon as possible. Um, you know, you do not want to experience the devastation that will accompany God humbling you. Much wiser to humble yourself than to have than to require God to humble you, because that that can be incredibly painful. So learn the lesson here: H- uh, humble yourself, repent early, repent often um, before it's necessary for God to use painful means to humble you. But again, when He does that, it's only because He loves you. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Again uh, even though all these things are going to come to pass, he's going to drive you out and yet he's still not going to really be humbled before me. And we're going to see that because what happens uh, moments after Pharaoh drives the people of Israel out of Egypt? He changes his mind and he goes after them. We're going to talk about that Lord willing in a couple of weeks here. Um, But it, it shows you how Incredibly insane pride can be. You know, never think our sin issues are this sort of rational thing, like sin is X, obedience is Y, therefore I choose. That's not the way that it works. We typically do what we do because we love it, because it it brings us pleasure. And even if it's insane, if you think through it on a rational level, because we love it, we'll still do it anyway. Uh, You know, you may have seen some of these intervention tv shows where um, people know the alcohol is destroying them it's destroying their family destroying their health destroying their career Um, and yet the alcohol is like locked up in some safe and that but they're trying to bust the safe open with a toothbrush i mean they're just going absolutely nuts if you stopped that addict and said listen what you're doing is crazy here they'd probably be like yeah it's crazy but i want the alcohol anyway realize in a way that's how our hearts work. On a rational level, if we really thought through it, it's insane to go after sin it's insane to think that these dead idols are going to satisfy us It's insane to think that we can just rebel against God and get away from it. oh, away with it but again, we uh, sin is not a Rational thing most of the time. It's 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 insane, um, and because of that, what we need is a changing of the heart, not typically more rational data. Now, God in His mercy sometimes uses rational data to like wake people up. You know, if you give somebody statistics on you know how bad say drunkenness is, sometimes that wakes people up. But usually, what's necessary is a deep change of the heart, and that can only happen by God's word and spirit. Anyway, verse ten. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of the land. Uh, Think again about how insane that pride must be. Pharaoh's seen nine of the ten plagues. He knows Moses is not fooling around. He's seen the plague of flies and gnats and dead frogs and water turned into blood and like I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we think that this has been going on for like two years at this point. Uh, So this is not something that just happened in one weekend. And yet Pharaoh is so hardened in his sin that even the threat of your firstborn son being killed, the next Pharaoh being killed, that's not enough to move him to break his will to let the people of Israel go. Again, it reminds you of how insane sin is. So don't toy with it. Uh, fight the first inklings of sin when you sense them welling up. I mean, that's really where you've got to fight sin. You don't fight sin uh, when you're, you know, you got the gun in your hand and you've handed the note to the bank teller and it says, Give me. No, no, you fight it like hours before that, when the thought comes to your mind, uh, that's where you've got to put sin to death. And you you don't toy with sin. You don't let it fester. You don't let it grow. You repent as early as possible. Otherwise, you can easily find yourself doing absolutely insane things. Uh, This is what sin does to us. So I suppose that's the big lesson that we should pray in response to this chapter. Let's pray for grace to repent early. Uh, None of us are sinless. And even as Christians, those who have been born again by God's Spirit and dwelt by God's Spirit, we're going to sin an awful lot. But what's the secret to not letting sin destroy you? It's repenting early, repenting quickly before that sin just takes over your life. And, And again, you find yourself doing uh, morally insane things. Uh, so I know that there's a lot we could pray in response to this passage. Maybe on your on your own in your devotions, pray in response to this passage. So, but but let maybe let's make that the emphasis today as we close. Dear Lord, please by your Holy Spirit help us to repent early, to humble ourselves uh, before these incredibly painful consequences start coming our way, uh, to 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 show us that we need to be humbled. Why don't we pray with that uh, in mind and we'll be done. Pray with me. God in heaven, it is wonderful to discuss your word. We thank you for the way that it does give us life. It revives our spirits and it renews our minds. We do thank you for the truths that we've talked about today and for the way that they speak, both of your judgment and your mercy, both of law law and of gospel, uh, both of the threat that accompanies rebellion, but at the same time the salvation that you offer ultimately in Jesus. We praise you for the way that this is the God that you are. Oh, dear Lord, please make us people that repent, early and often. Lord, we know we're going to sin. We know that our righteousness is Jesus. We know that at the end of the day, um, if we were to be judged by our works, we could not stand. And yet at the same time, we don't want to toy with sin. We believe sin can destroy us. So please, by your spirit, renew us, transform us, give us sensitive consciences, give us greater hatred for sin, and make us people that repent quickly after we've sinned and run to the cross for cleansing. We do thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus, for the way that His blood cleanses us from all sin. We thank You also for Your sovereignty, and for the way that Your purposes will stand, and for the way that even the evil acts of men like Pharaoh serve to accomplish Your purposes. Help us again to trust in Your Word and to love our neighbor. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great day.